Well, good morning. Good morning, Door Creek. It's great to be with you. It's great to be with you this morning. Uh, man, is it not great just to sing together like that? Oh, it's great. So uh, for those of you that are new here, maybe you're a guest, maybe you're visiting, I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning, here this weekend. My name is Mark, one of the pastors here on staff, part of the teaching team, and uh, just excited to continue in the series that we've been in called What Matters, and we've been exploring the whole subject of work. And uh, several weeks ago when we started this idea of uh, work and why it matters, our lead pastor, Mark Myfair, just took us through the meta-narrative of Scripture, seeing how work is this thing that God ordained, that God said this is good, through throughout the entire scriptures. And then the next week, uh, Ryan, our campus pastor up to Forest, uh, we talked about why work is hard uh, today, why work is, is work, as he said it. And last week, we, we took a glance at how to connect our faith and our work. And so today, we're going to just kind of round out our series on work as we explore why it matters. And I want to start by just kind of uh, the beginning of my understanding of my own uh, vocation and uh, is share in my uh, terrible experience that I'm about to share with you. So uh, maybe you are in this uh, season of life, or you've been in this season of life, or maybe you remember being a teenager and having the conversations with your parents or maybe a school counselor, just kind of answer this question, what do you want to do? Right, this, this big question that we, this monstrous question that we put on teenagers, right? This is, what do you want to do? And uh, my dad's an engineer. He's a great engineer. And I remember just thinking, I want to be an engineer like my dad. I'm really good at Legos. I'll be good at engineering, right? <laughs> Those match up. They don't. Uh, so, so I made sure I got the right grades. I made sure that I did all the right classes in high school. I got into the, the degree program I wanted to get into, the school that I wanted to get into. And I found myself as a freshman and I was just overwhelmed like all freshmen are. And it was fantastic. And then in the biology class that I was in, it came time for the first exam several weeks in studied for this exam. Yeah, you know where this is going. I studied for this exam, and uh, I remember taking this test, and then the next week, the professor hands the test back, and of course, it's folded, and I take a peek, and I go, uh-oh, uh-oh, but it wasn't enough, because being the thorough professor that he was, he put all the grades up on the board, not individually, but it was a big class. How many people got an A? How many people got a B? So here's this graph chart, like 30 people got an A, 40 people got a B, about another 40 people got a C, a few people got a D. And in a standard program of this caliber, that's where the graph would stop. But this graph didn't stop there. So no one got in the 60s, no one got in the 50s, this does get worse, no one got in the 40s, no one got in the 30s, one person got a 20% on the test. Talk about being devastated. I was like, what just happened? This is never, this is a good student, this has never happened in my entire life. The guy sitting next to me, he doesn't know me, he doesn't know that I got the grade, he leans over and he goes, man, that guy sucks. <laughs> and I just... I just leaned back over and I said, I know. <laughs> what is he doing in this class? And that just started a really difficult semester. And I remember calling my dad on the phone and saying, Dad, I don't think I'm going to be an engineer. And I wrestled with this question that so many of us have wrestled with in our life and some are wrestling with right now, this simple question of what am I going to do? 
what am I going to do with my life? And you don't have to be 18 years old to ask that question, to have that question on your heart. You can be uh, in your 30s or 40s, have a great career, but hate your job, but have a family to support, and this question's still on your mind. What am I going to do? You could be maybe recently retired, and your identity has been so tied to your vocation that you have this question on your heart, what am I going to do? Well, we can't answer that question in its entirety, and it would be a bit ignorant to think that we could this morning. But hopefully, as we dive into the scriptures, we can at least understand a part of no matter what our work is, what God is calling us to. And uh, as we continue on, it's important that we get two words really clear in our, in our minds. And I know we can debate these words all day long. So just bear with me with these definitions. The first word is calling. The second word is vocation. We use the word calling in such grand ways. What is your calling in life? There's so much weight and there's so much pressure. And it's completely unnecessary because the Bible actually is very clear on what our calling is. Ephesians 4.1. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and he literally says, Live worthy of the calling you have received. And the calling that he's talking about for those of us that are sons and daughters of Christ that have put our faith and our trust in Christ is just that. Our calling at the most fundamental level is to live a life worthy of being a son and a daughter of Christ. It's that easy and it's that difficult, but that is at the most fundamental level our calling. Now, our gifts, our abilities, our uh, skills, the opportunities that come in our life shape that and, and it looks different for different people, but at the most basic level, this is our calling that we are supposed to become the sons and daughters of Christ, live worthy of this calling that we've received, as Paul says in Ephesians 4.1. And this takes immense pressure off then the second word, this vocation. Because if that's our calling, then our vocation is just simply the work that we do along the way, right? Unpaid, paid, whether we hate it or love it. Few people, their vocation and their calling line up in magical ways. Most people, I believe, just in my experience and interact with lots of people, they don't exactly line up. And we're left with this question, what are we supposed to do? So what does the scriptures tell us that we should do no matter our vocation as we pursue our calling? Are you with me? All right, so there's a, there's, a, there's a beautiful story in Acts chapter 9 that, that gets us to the point that we're trying to make uh, this morning. Story at the end of Acts chapter 9 uh, is a funeral setting. And uh, this wonderful lady in the community has passed away. And uh, the friends that are gathering around her, uh, they hear that uh, Peter is traveling by nearby towns, proclaiming the good news of Christ, uh, seeing people saved by his name and through his grace and doing miracles in the name of Christ. And they say, go get Peter. He has to know that our friend has died because she is very reputable. Maybe he can raise her from the dead. And so Peter's traveling to the different neighboring towns and, and these two friends or however many it was come running up to him and they say, Peter, you gotta come to Joppa. You gotta come and see Tabitha has died. Tabitha is dead, but we believe that if you come maybe in the name of Christ, you can raise her from the dead. For those of us that have had the unfortunate opportunity of having a loved one pass, do you remember what it's like when someone who does not know the one who has passed and they come into your home or they come to the visitation? What we try to do is we're showing them pictures 
of our loved one. We're, we're trying to validate the reputation. We're saying, no, this person uh, was a very good person. Maybe it was a grandparent. Maybe it was a spouse, whoever it was in your life. If you had had this unfortunate opportunity, uh, uh, you know what it's like to, to show the tangible objects which are left behind that give value, that attribute to the worth of the person who is no longer with us. If they were a skilled craftsman, maybe it's uh, showing them the, the woodworking that they did, that they left as heirlooms. If they were good with a needle or uh, crocheting, whatever it were, maybe the blanket or the clothes that they made. And this is the scene that Peter walks into as he walks into the upper room here in this house in Joppa to go see Tabitha. He doesn't come into an empty room where this body is being prepared. He comes into a room full of widows. And the widows are weeping because their dear friend has died, but they are not empty-handed in their hands, across their arms, over their shoulders. I'm sure however they could possibly carry them were garments. Because what Tabitha was known for doing was uh, using her work as a seamstress for good in sewing many clothes for those who could not afford to buy their own. And Peter walks into this room full of widows and essentially what he's walking into is these widows who care for their friend Tabitha and they say, look, Peter, her reputation is true. Her reputation is, is, is uh, validated. Look at all the good work that she's done in our community, work for the common good of so many people. And actually in Acts chapter nine, verse 36, it actually says this. It says, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. By the way, one of the few times in scripture that the, the word disciple is attributed to a woman, there was a disciple named Tabitha and she was always doing good and helping the poor. And so many times, no matter what we wanna do with our life, many of us have heard the motivational comment of what do you want said at the end of your life? And Tabitha gives us an idea of what it is to have something really good said about you at the end of your life. Now the story works out really well. Peter raises her from the dead. It's a fantastic story in Acts chapter nine, but it gets us to this point. What we're talking about today as we continue to explore work is that our work should connect to the common good. The work that we do, whatever it is that our vocation is, paid or unpaid, wanted or unwanted, should contribute to the common good, the benefit of those around us. And we're going to look at a specific scripture that actually helps us understand exactly what that could mean and who that should influence. In uh, the 1940s, World War II uh, started the decade, and it was a tragic war. And many men uh, either had volunteered or were drafted and were gone. And the women entered the workforce in a way that had never been done in American history. And so in 1943, a man by the name of J. Howard Miller was charged with coming up with a PR campaign to help encourage and motivate the women in the workforce to remind them, you are doing good work. Do you recognize this image? Right? We can do it. This is like one of the most classic, iconic, 
American image is of the 20th century and it's an encouragement. It was met with mixed success initially, but it didn't take long. And uh, all sorts of iterations of this have existed since 1943 for the good of much work as women continue to enter the workforce. Women's rights groups, we praise God for the work that they've done. There's still a lot of work to do right, but this kind of encouragement, this, this PR campaign, uh, this poster, this, just this reminder, we can do it. And I'll show you this today because ancient Israel actually had something very similar. But it wasn't a poster, it was a poem. And uh, the poem was a beautiful poem. And I'm not a literary geek, some of you may be, so I will pretend to be one, okay? So this literary poem was an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet which means that every letter of the Hebrew alphabet uh, lined up with each line of this poem. And that tells us of its importance. That helps us understand that this poem was supposed to be something that was memorized as it was a tool, acrostic as a tool for memory. The other thing about this poem is that it's in the form of a chiasmus. You may say, what's a chiasmus? That's not a hole in the ground, that's a chasm. Uh, chiasmus is a literary structure, and you can correct me later if I butcher this, but a chiasmus is a literary structure where essentially the poem thematically and in what it's portraying folds in on itself as it works thematically to a center point in the poem and then works back out in the same way, using different words but reflecting the same themes and the same ideas as it did moving towards the center. This is a beautifully constructed poem. Many of you know it as the virtuous woman. Proverbs 31 verses 10 through 31 is this poem. This poem was actually written to men of all things uh, and uh, it tells us this poem actually holds some immense truth as we explore this idea of doing work for the common good. So whether you have a hard copy of the Bible or maybe you have your Bible on an app on some kind of electronic device, let's go ahead and open it up to Proverbs chapter 31. We're going to read this scripture together. And here's what I'd like us to do. I'd like you, as we're reading the scripture, to have this kind of a filter in mind. We could spend the entire uh, morning just on the scripture, but what we're going to do is draw out from it the different people groups that are affected in the, in, by the work done from this, this virtuous woman or this lady wisdom, if you will, and how her influence is for the common good of those around here. So let's go ahead and read this together. So starting in verse 10, says this, a wife, I'm reading from the NIV, a wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it is still night. She provides food for her family and portions for her female servants. She considers a field and buys it. Out of the earnings, she plants a vineyard. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her task. She sees that her trading is profitable and her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear of her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is respected at the city gate, where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them and supplies the merchants with sashes. 
She is clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all that her hands have done and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. And here we have this beautiful poem that helps us see, helps us understand what wisdom, as some scholars would like to suggest, that Proverbs 31, 10 through 31 is a summation of what wisdom looks like when it starts in the home and works out. And so for those of you that maybe grew up in a maybe a bit more legalistic environment and this passage was lorded over you as something that you must attain to in a way that was guilt-ridden, I just want to apologize. This verse is meant to encourage us. This verse is meant to ultimately point us to Christ, but just to show us like wisdom in its embodiment can like look this way in its work ethic and in its work for the common good of others. And we see this, I've tried to break it down so we can help us see this. These are kind of the themes of the people groups in which her common good is attributing to. So first her husband in verses 11, 23, and 28. Uh, Next, we have her children, her family, verses 15, 21, 27, and 28. Next, we have those who work for her, verse 15, the poor and the needy, verse 20, and then lastly, just the greater community, including the business community, verses 18, 19, and 31. This woman was a working woman in every sense of the term. Uh, She's buying things, she's making things, she's making trades, and uh, what's beautiful about this is we take the totality of it, and we're like, whoa oh, this is an extraordinary passage that we should attain to. Like, wow. But if we break it down, they're actually very common things if, if kind of uh, singled out. Making sure there's food, right? Clothing, uh, basic business that's happening. Being respectful. These are just common, common things. And it's the sum of them that makes them extraordinary, not any single one. And this brings us to a very crucial point as we dive into what it means to do work for the common good, and that is this, that doing work for the common good is often just simply doing common work. It's just just often doing common work time and time again, bringing our whole selves to it. Look at uh, Tabitha, she's just sewing clothes. There's nothing extraordinary about making a garment. It's a very common task for many people. But she brought herself to it over and over and over and over again for the benefit of others. And this is how we get this kind of extraordinary uh, uh, event, this extraordinary reputation. Same thing with the Proverbs 31 woman. We have this, she has an extraordinary reputation, not because of one single thing that she does, but because of the summation of some very common tasks. And we live in a world that is riddled with the headline right? Uh, 15 minutes of fame on the news or, or, or how many likes on Facebook that gets the most, that gets the most circulation. And, and, and we're just wired to go for the grand gesture. 
And some of us, some of us are gifted with that opportunity and we should take advantage of us, advantage of it. Uh, but many of us, we, it actually distracts us from what it truly means to do work for the common good. So before we talk about what's hard about doing work for the common good, let's just kind of, let's just kind of uh, make sure we're all on the same page. There's a contemporary scholar named Miroslav Volf. It's a fun name. Uh, he says this, when we just talk about the scriptures and doing common good for others, he says this, he says, in the Bible and in the first centuries of Christian tradition, meeting one's needs and the needs of one's community, especially underprivileged members, was clearly the most important purpose of work. And we can see this, I just highlighted two passages, but you can go through, just comb through the scriptures and you'll find story after story after story of just people doing work for the common good. Fast forward many centuries. A couple centuries ago, we have the Puritans. The Puritans are a Christian group of people that made their name for a lot of things. And, uh, but one of the things that they gave us is just kind of this beautiful language and understanding work. William Perkins, a Puritan, uh, said this a long time ago. He said, the main end of our lives is to serve God in the serving of men in the works of their callings. Some man will say, perchance, what? <laughs> Must we not labor in our calling to maintain our families? I answer, he says, this must be done, but this is not the scope and the end of our lives. The true end of our lives is to do service to God in serving of man. And what he's answering is this question that sometimes in the back of our minds, of like, what, am I not supposed to take care of my family? And he goes, no, you are. But that's not it. That's not the scope of your life. The true end of our lives is to do service to God in serving of man. True contemporary and author Tom Nelson says this, he says, when we speak of the common good, we are describing all the various aspects of contemporary life that contribute positively to the human flourishing, both as individuals and as communities. It's a great definition of what the common good is. All that contribute positively to human flourishing, both as individuals and as communities. And I love kind of like preparing for this message, ask a couple people, what is the common good? It was just, just like seeing people's initial response because it's like, it's not rocket science, right? Like it's, I mean, it's literally in the title, common good. It's just common good. There's nothing like attractive about that phrase. You know, there's nothing like exciting about that phrase. But yet there's some real rough edges when we dive in to understanding what it actually means to do work for the common good that God is calling us to and are calling to be his sons and his daughters. Uh, we talked about how we live for the headlines, right? These grand gestures. We have billionaires giving billions of dollars away. And this is good. They should do that. They should give more billions of dollars away. But uh, it's easy to kind of look at these grand gestures, maybe the, the Facebook feed uh, that, that flies through or the news highlight, and you go, oh, I'll never be able to do that. What good is my work for the common good? I, I don't have that influence. I don't have that kind of reputation. I just want to remind you, doing work for the common good is just simply doing common work. And others of us, as we see those headlines, we're like, wait a second, that, that person, they're actually like, I know, I know they're not a Christian. I know they don't know Christ. Or if they are, they're hiding it like really well. How does that work out? 
How does someone who is adamantly opposed to the person and work of Jesus Christ doing incredible work in the community for the common good, how do those two things work out? That's a great question. Since I raised it, I should probably address it. What can help us here is a theological term called common grace. And probably oversimplified, Common grace is a theology that helps us understand that the goodness of God and the grace of God can be experienced by more than just his children. Let me, let me illustrate this. Let's say you're on vacation. Hopefully you get on vacation somewhere, even if it's like to the Dells. Hopefully you get on vacation. Let's say you're by the water. I know this is really crude considering that winter's around the corner, but let's just go there. All right. You wake up in the morning, the sun's coming through your window. Do you know, you get this image in your head. Hopefully some of us have been here. There's that smell, that aroma in the air that only vacation uh, can bring with the sunlight. Maybe you're near the water and you hear the waves crashing. Maybe there's birds and it's just this beautiful gift that we have when we're on vacation. Well, the, the truth is, if you know Christ, you don't hear the birds in a different way than the person who doesn't know Christ. You don't hear and experience the water in a way that is different than the person who doesn't know Christ. The sun isn't like warmer on your skin than the person who doesn't know Christ. This is common grace in the sense that God has made creation and he's given it as a gift to all to enjoy. This is an example of how this works out. So if we can go there, then we can understand that people who are far from Christ, God can allow them to contribute to the common good, to his goodness, even if they do not know him. And that is the beauty of it. Those who are adamantly opposed to the person and work of Jesus Christ who are doing great things for the common good, they're actually doing good for Christ. So go for it. Right? This is common grace. This helps us kind of answer this question. And so what good is the work that we do? Tell her, uh, Keller... Tim Keller helps us understand it in this way. He says, just as God equips Christians for building up the body of Christ, so he also equips all people with the talents and gifts for various kinds of work for the purposes of building up the human community. And when Jesus talks about how we should be salt and light, this is how we should be different. That when we do work for the common good, it's done in a way that reflects Christ. It's done in a way that preserves the goodness of Christ. He's salt. We can think of it easily in our 21st uh, eyes, our mindset, that it's something I put salt on my eggs, I put salt on my veggies, uh, whatever it is, just to give it a little flavor. But we should be more than just a little flavor in the community. Salt was also a preservative in that day. And when the people heard Christ say, you should be the salt, they heard it not just as flavor, but they heard it as a preservative. We should be the ones in our community helping to preserve the goodness of God's creation, helping to preserve the goodness of relationships, seeking the peace, seeking the prosperity, reconciliation, restoration. These are the th ways that we can help reflect Christ as we do work for the common good. 
So common grace, that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is, is indirect and direct contribution to the common good. So some of you, you work directly with people. Maybe you're providing a service, perhaps you're a teacher, but doing work for the common good, it's like tangibly on your fingertips in the work that you do in your vocation as you pursue your calling, and you totally get this because you can see it happen. There's a direct influence. Others of you, you're going, Mark, I literally stare at a computer screen all day. Like, how does this, how does this line up? How is what I'm doing work for the common good? We have to open our minds a little bit. A reformer named Martin Luther, several centuries ago, wrote this. He says, when you pray for daily bread, and when he's talking about daily bread, he's talking about the, the aspect of the Lord's prayer, when he says, give us this day, our daily bread. When you pray for daily bread, you are praying for everything that contributes to your having and enjoying your daily bread. You must open up and expand your thinking so that it is uh, not reaching, or so that it is reaching not only as far as the flour bin and the baking oven, but also out over the broad fields, the farmlands, the entire community that produces, processes, and conveys to us our daily bread and all kinds of nourishment. And if Martin Luther can say that, when that was like the most technologically advanced they were that day, we need to open our minds and understand how the work that we do may contribute to the common good. I was talking with, I was at a benefit not too long ago, a fundraiser, a guy sitting at my table, he's an engineer, and I was talking with him, and what does he do? He works in waste management, what do you do? And he says this, he says, basically, uh, when, if you live in these specific districts or this township, when you flush the toilet, my team's responsible for making sure your waste goes to the right place. That is work for the common good. <laughs> Okay, he's not in your bathroom flushing, I mean, thank goodness, but right? And so sometimes you're sitting behind a computer screen, you know, typing in code or perhaps uh, answering calls at a call center, like, like open your mind a little bit. Maybe the code that you're writing is for this uh, app uh, for maybe work at health insurance here in Madison. And when someone is in crisis, they're able to go to a website or their phone and get help right away. Your work connected to the common good of so many others in this way. We just need to open our minds a little bit to understand how we are contributing to the common good and maybe that can help us bring some value to the work that some of us may despise or may think is kind of unnecessary. Now there is some work that actually may not contribute to the common good, but you have to wrestle with this idea of maybe your work is just indirectly connected to the common good. when we talk about being a Christ-centered church for all people here at Door Creek Church, what we're talking about is uh, Christ is the difference, okay? Some have said uh, in private conversations with me, Mark, why does it say all people? Christ-centered church for all people. Like what kind of a, a business plan is that? Like all people, like where's your target market? You know what I mean? Like what are you guys doing? You got venues, you got multi-sites, you got all this other kind of stuff. Like what are you doing? And the answer is, is simply this. It's found in the context of what we're studying. It's just like we want Christ to make the difference. Christ makes the difference as we bring ourselves in our vocation to our calling in so many different ways. And so when we think about being salt and light, whether it's indirect or direct, Christ makes the difference. It's also why uh, in our vision statement, it says the gospel is continually transforming lives, renewing our city and changing the world, not Door Creek Church. 
we hope that God uses us, but it's the gospel, it's the good news of Christ that actually transforms lives and uh, renews our city and changes the world. And it's important to do the hard work of connecting our vocation with this calling, this specific aspect of doing good uh, work for the common good, which is often just doing, which is often just doing common work. So, so far, uh, everything that we've talked about, you know, common grace, indirect work, direct work, kind of understanding these things, it's kind of been all up here, right? Just kind of understanding it and the nuances of the words and these kinds of things. But this, this isn't what's hard about doing work for the common good. This is. This is what makes it difficult. This is what really makes it rough around the edges. Dorothy Sayers uh, wrote a book recently and she says this that gets to this point. She says, the popular catchphrase of today is that everybody's duty is to serve the community. And most of us can agree with this. But, she argues, there is in fact a paradox about working to serve the community uh, and it is this, that, the aim, that, that to aim directly at serving the community is to falsify the work. I'll read that again. To aim directly at serving the community is to falsify the work. There are several good reasons for this. Let's dive in. She says, the moment you only think of serving other people, you begin to have a notion that other people owe you something for your pains. You begin to think that you have a claim on the community. You will begin to bargain for reward, to angle for applause, and to harbor a grievance if you are not appreciated. You give hours of your time, day after day after day, to pull off this wondrous event that does so much good in the community. There's a wrap-up event afterwards where the leader's standing up front thanking everyone, and in your heart, you, uh, it says, in your heart, you just have this, this statement that says, I better hear my name called. I better hear my name so that I can get the recognition that I deserve this claim on the community. I, I went out of my way to help that person. Someone better go out of their way to help me. They owe me. Have you ever been here? Maybe it's in a work environment and uh, your employer or your boss is handing out accolades and he specifically singles out your business partner, uh, your colleague, and he just gives them all the attention, all the praise, and you just go, where's mine? I stayed up night after night too. Where is my recognition? You're, you're, you're like, where is my plaque? Where's the thing I can hang on my wall? What's the thing I can take a picture of to post on Facebook? Where is my face in a bronze statue? Which some of us should never have our face in a bronze statue. What about in our families? What about in our families when the sibling receives fill in the blank? And our heart just says, where's my recognition? Where's mine? Because what we forget is this loving God 
who's gifted us so much that we don't deserve. All these incredible experiences through his creation, the skills, the abilities, the opportunities that we have through our day, his faithfulness lived out, his mercy lived out. He's given us the greatest act of common good that we could ever ask for, ever receive when Christ was hung on the cross for the sins of the world. And through that, through our faith and our trust in Christ, he calls us his sons and his daughters. In Titus chapter three, it actually says that we're heirs to Christ. And so when we read in the scriptures all these attributes of Christ and how worthy he is and how wonderful he is, we are heirs to that. And God says, I've given you all the accolade that you could possibly ask for. It's in Christ. This is your reward. But oftentimes it's just not, not enough for us because we want something we can post or hang on a wall, and there's nothing wrong with receiving a reward, by the way. If someone wants to give you a reward, don't be like, run away, don't do that. But our heart posture has to be right. Jesus actually speaks directly to this point in Matthew chapter six. He says this, he says, they have received their reward when he talks about those who want the praises of men. He says, no, 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 they've received their reward. Again, in Luke chapter six, in the same context of talking about doing good works, he actually says, he says, expect nothing in return. Because when we talk about doing good work for the common good, we're just talking about doing common work over and over and over and over again, not because they deserve it. By all means, no one actually deserves it. But because Christ has already given us everything we do deserve, everything we don't deserve, Christ has already given it to us and it's being rooted in him that we can just give and give and give and give and give. Have you ever found yourself saying, well, I just didn't feel appreciated? My question is, by who? By who? God's already done the work for us and he's certainly shown us his appreciation. And we will always fail each other. If there's one thing you can count on is that we're going to fail each other at least some point along the way. And yet we act surprised. Like, what? They were a person? No way. And I don't want to belittle your experience if you were the result of some kind of malicious intent. But for the most of us, man, we need to align our hearts right when it talks about doing work for the common good. Christ tells us in the greatest commandment, the Pharisees try and catch him, what are the greatest commandment? And he just answers them. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then he says this, love your neighbor. And what does he say, love your neighbor? Yeah, because he knows we're selfish. If you can love people as much as you love yourself, you will be okay. And it's just an extension of loving our neighbor that we do work for the common good has nothing to do with our neighbor. You want a great marriage? Love your spouse because of Christ, not because of them. Right? You want great relationships? Just love on other people, not because they deserve it. Goodness knows they don't. Love them because Christ loves you and Christ loves them. In Galatians 6, verse 10, uh, Paul encourages the church. He says, do good to everyone. He also encourages in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 12, verse 9, this is one of my favorite verses, just part of the verse that says this. It says, outdo one another in showing honor. 
That's a really ambitious verse. (laughs) Outdo one another in showing honor. Love each other with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. And it's all done in this kind of like this humbleness, knowing that it's not because we're trying to get an accolade from anyone else or because they deserve it, but because Christ has already done it for us. So go back to Proverbs 31. And uh, we remember this, that at the end of Proverbs 31, it talks about the lady wisdom embodied, uh, it fears the Lord. Tabitha, remember what it says about her, that she's a disciple. This all happens. We can have a great reputation, not by grand gestures, but by bringing ourselves to do work for the common good, doing common work again and again and again in the name of Christ. So as we close, for some of you, you are actually doing this. And I just want to encourage you, keep moving forward. Keep rocking on, keep doing it. Last night after the message, I came down and there was a woman crying. And my first response was like, I wasn't that bad. (laughs) And she was crying because her husband had committed suicide several years ago, a long time ago. And she had quit her job in the fashion industry and just received donations of fabric and sewed clothes for children and would send them over to Africa. I was like, you're a modern day Tabitha. And we just shared in the enjoying what we just talked about. Some of you are doing this work and I just want to say thank you. Praise God, keep doing it. Keep doing it. But I think for most of us, for the rest of us, we can just maybe ask ourselves a different question every day. Instead of asking yourself a question, uh, going into an event or going into an opportunity, what can I get for me? How much money can I make? What kind of status uh, can I attain? What what can I get in, in, in response for this? Instead of asking those questions that our hearts may naturally jump toward, we can ask a different question. The question that we can ask is, what? with my abilities and my opportunities can I do that will serve the most people? Can you imagine how different our lives would be if we woke up every day just asking ourselves that question? What with my abilities and my opportunities can I do to serve the most people? If we can continually align and realign our hearts on Christ, the good work that he's done for us, It can equip us to bring ourselves again and again and again to the work that he's called us to do for the common good, which is just simply doing common work. Let's pray together. God, so thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, how you can encourage us in this way. Help us. Help us move forward as we continue to work for the common good. Help us reflect your goodness. Help us reflect your grace. Help us reflect your mercy. Father, help us in the understanding of our calling to be your sons and your daughters. Father, help us, we ask, this week. May we do good work for the common good in just simply bringing ourselves again and again and again to the common work before us. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.